Yeah. And I guess they're they're getting their change and stuff. Um, I would encourage you to turn in your Bible, your copy of God's Word, to First uh, Timothy, chapter two. I'm going to be reading, and we're going to be spending our time in verses eight through fifteen. And uh, it was uh, an appropriate morning as we pulled up, and I park. My kids are obsessed with this dogwood tree over here at the back of our sort of empty lot, right? And so we park under the dogwood tree so we can go out the back gate, just makes their day, right? So uh, it's like, that's all this. It's really, I'm not even that conscious about like the sun or the heat or anything, or like, it's just my kids like the dogwood tree. It's really great April when uh, the blooms come out. But as we were getting out of the car, uh, Henry started, my, my, my oldest son, one of my, he's the second uh, after Evelyn May. And he says, uh, Daddy, does, does Jesus let you use, let you use that thing? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, that, that big thing that you, on Sunday mornings, does, does Jesus let you use that? And, uh, and I was like, the pulpit? And he was like, yeah, does Jesus let you use that? And I said, in fact, yes, he does. <laughs> it belongs to Jesus. Uh, as this word is from our Lord, uh, I and we are compelled to preach it and to hear it. Uh, and I have no doubt that today it will confront us. And if it brings controversy, it will bring controversy. Let it do its work. Uh, but would you stand as we read First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. But know also, as God's word might bring controversy, God builds his church by the power of his word. Verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly recognizing the places where your word meets our lives like 40 grit sandpaper. And such as today. So, Lord, would you help us to hear? Would you help us to see? Would you help us, above all, bend the knee to Christ the Lord? Lord, would you help? For apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, God, would you speak today, even today, even to us right now, by the power of your spirit in your word, 
Would you speak? Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It's important at the outset, as we want to zero in on the places that you probably don't like this text. Um, I even have had people uh, doubt whether or not I was going to preach it today um, in, our, in our congregation last week. Uh, they, they, people came up to me and said, what are you going to preach next week? And I said, whatever's next. In First Timothy, I was fully aware of what was next. Uh, whatever's next in First Timothy, we're in First Timothy. And so uh, I remember also once, uh, this was years ago, but you know, I, I can say that now. I've been here eight years. Uh, the 14th of this month was eight years I've been here by God's grace. Uh, that it was a Wednesday or a Sunday night. I don't remember the exact context, but I was down here with the podium. And I began to expound either this or First Peter 3, which is um, not quite a parallel, but a similar idea. And I had someone, uh, they no longer attend here for what's going to prove to be obvious reasons in a second. Um, it's not, I'm, not, I'm just saying, you'll see why they don't. Uh, and I began to open these things up about men and women and how God has designed us distinct to complement each other and the roles and the functions. Uh, and uh, they, they said... It was one of those, uh, I'm going to whisper, but I'm actually going to yell, you know, to myself type thing that, you know, that was 2000 years ago, but this is today. Um, As though we had a different standard, we have a different standard in 2022 than than the living God inspired in the year 62. Um, Dear ones, we don't get to make up standards and we do not have the luxury nor the right to speak where God has said something differently. Uh, and so we must come to an admittedly difficult text. I was joking around this week and I said I could, um, I don't know if it's Sarah Beth or Sage, my, my people I talk to are randomly the most, don't get confused. Uh, and uh, that I said I, I could preach about, you know, un- unconditional election and predestination and free will and I would have less controversy probably than what I'm about to open up here. Uh, And so I'm fully aware of it. But uh, it's important at the outset when we come to this text that we understand that what Paul what Paul is doing is twofold. One, he is speaking to a specific context, to a specific local church and to a specific local church leader. Two, the context of chapter two is predominantly corporate worship, but also the the Christian community as a whole. That when you talk about groups of people coming together to pray and coming together to receive instruction, you're talking about corporate worship. And worship is the the culmination. This, This is the purpose of people. This is the purpose for which you exist is the worship of the living God and to enjoy him. Right. We're designed to make much of God and to enjoy God. By in making much of him that ultimately, as the the Bible's testimony to us is that our greatest fulfillment and our greatest joy are not at odds with God's greatest glory in us. And too often we mix this up with the Christian life. We think the Christian life is somehow drab, dreary. It is meant for puritanical people and prudes. Uh, that are you're up, you're in the do's and don'ts, but everybody else out there is into you know free living and enjoying life, and you guys in the church are just about a bunch of curmudgeons. 
And too often Christians act like this. But what we need to understand uh, is that these two things are not at odds. And in fact, and this is really the, where we begin to hammer down on the point. Uh, and in fact, the more that we live into and submit to God's design and God's will, we will more greatly glorify Him in our lives and more deeply enjoy Him. The more that we live into God's design, God's will, God's purpose, God's way, the more we will glorify Him. And in fact, the more joy we will get in glorifying Him. But too often, so much of our joy and fulfillment in Christ is sucked away as if it were a vacuum because we try to live in two worlds. We try to say, I'm going to live for God's glory, but I'm going to do it by my own strength. I'm going to live by, by, for God's glory, and I'm going to set the rules of what that means. So often Christians want to say, this is how I worship, and this is what my God does. Have you ever heard that? Right? My, my God would never do that. Let, let me meet him because he's not here. So when we want to set the rules, and we want to set the boundaries, we want to set the design... While pursuing fulfillment, or another way to say it, is where we disregard what God has said while still pursuing fulfillment and flourishing, which is all we have to do, right? Everybody wants to be fulfilled. Everybody wants to experience joy. Everybody wants to experience flourishing. Everybody wants to be full and satisfied in this life. But when we pursue that, While disregarding what God has said, we fall into the same trap as Eve in the garden. You can have all of the gifts and get rid of the giver. You can have everything that you want, but you must disregard God. Here's your fulfillment and your joy and your happiness. Only you must pursue it by rebellion. And that is a recipe for disaster, as the testimony of Scripture tells us, as the Word of God tells us. It's a recipe for disaster, spiritually, morally, relationally, in our worship of God. It ruins us, where we try to find fulfillment and flourishing apart from God. Where we try to seek self-actualization and self-realization apart from God. It ruins us. And in fact, but in fact, this is what so many of the false hopes and the false gospels our culture wants to pipe to us. It is based upon this right here. Have it your way. You can have everything you dream of. You just have to become the you you were meant to be. Disregard God. Disregard the standards of God. And in fact, disregard the the explicit design of God. And you can have everything you could want. And too often churches and Christians are shaped in like manner. That we can worship the way that we would want to worship rather than looking into what God has said in his word. And that we ourselves could say this is what a man is and this is what a woman is. And this is how a man is to operate and this is how a woman is to operate. But there was a problem particular to Ephesus and probably to Crete, right? Crete is where... Uh, Titus goes to, in the book of Titus, Paul sends Titus to Crete, the island in the Mediterranean, uh, like he sends Timothy to Ephesus. 
And there was something circling around the Mediterranean basin, around the Mediterranean Sea, and these churches that were being planted and popping up as people were believing upon the gospel of Christ, and disciples are being made, and churches are being planted, and we're seeing the gospel go forth. There's always, 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 on the heels of authentic moves of God, there are attempts by the adversary to deceive, to detract, and to subtract from what God is doing. And so these false teachers that we've already been engaging in thus far in 1 Timothy, that they're, 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 they're centered on Jewishness, they're centered on the law, they're, they're centered on myths and speculations rather than furthering the plan of God. Uh, they, they, they instruct in forbidding marriage and forbidding from certain foods. They're, they're restrictive and they're strict. And these false teachers have come in and something about them, some problem that has arisen in Ephesus is that there are, uh, and it reminds me, if you were here before I say it, it reminds me of the sermon I preached for Summer Sunday Nights of Praise. You guys remember that? I'm sure you, I'm sure you transcribed it. You keep it on your bathroom mirror. Um, I, I fully realize I, there, I, I could preach a million sermons and you're, you might remember two words uh, that I said. Um, but sometimes you preach for uh, impression rather than memorization. Okay, anyways. Uh, but there, there is there in the church at Thyatira. Uh, Jesus is, is um, confronting that church in the seven letters to the churches in the beginning of Revelation. At the church of Thyatira, Jesus says, This I have against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. That there was a, a self-appointed female religious leader that was leading people astray. And so something in Ephesus is similar to what's happening. It happens later that happens in Thyatira, that there are women who are self-appointed, who are taking positions of formal instruction and preaching in the context of the local church. This is just what's happening. Um, That there are women who are stepping up. They're not learning quietly with submissiveness, but they are teaching and exercising authority. I don't know if you've ever understood this or contemplated this, but this right here, when someone stands behind the sacred desk and whether or not they have a coffee table, whether or not they have a podium, whether they have one of those slick acrylic clear things, when you open up the word of God in the context of corporate worship, you are exercising a type of authority. And my authority this morning does not arise from myself. I am irrelevant to this conversation, hopefully. The Word of God must be and is the only authority that the preacher of the Word of God has. It is not charisma. It is not even skill and giftedness. Yes, ordination and all that kind of stuff matters. uh, But the authority rests solely upon the Word of God. And so these, these, this woman or these women were taking positions in the context of corporate worship and seeking to exercise authority of opening the word of God and preaching and teaching in those contexts. And it's important that when we see what Paul says, like, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, that he's saying that in that context. If you were to go look at somewhere, say, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. All right, I'm not going to open that up because it gets into head coverings. And that's a deep dive that we don't have time to like, what is that? What are we going? What's happening there? But, um, but it says in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when a woman prays or prophesies. 
publicly. When a woman prays or prophesies publicly. So when Paul is saying this, he has, he has particular f- vision upon what we'll say is the pulpit. He has particular vision upon the, the open preaching and teaching of the word of God in the gathered church in worship. Okay, just I'm trying to put some boundaries up here for you. But this, this problem, these false teachers, not only are there women taking these positions that Paul is confronting here, um, but as we'll see in the next chapter, as he's outlining, this is what an overseer is, or this is what a pastor is, and this is what a deacon is, and this is how a deacon acts, that there's, a, there's this dreadful combination in the church at Ephesus where you have self-willed women taking positions that are not right for them, and then you have weak and effeminate men who are bowing in submission to the false authority of these false teachers. I know that might grate you. But he has to outline, this is what an overseer is. right? And we'll get into that beginning next week by God's grace. But um, that, there, that he's, he's saying, men, you have to rise up and take some spiritual authority that God has designed for you. And women, you also have to submit. And we'll get, I'm going to open these things up. Just take a breath. But also... This goes couplet, goes hand in hand as, as the church begins to get confused on men and women. When the church gets confused on men and women, no wonder the culture is confused on men and women. When this is controversial in the context of the church, could you imagine me coming and just simply reading this scripture in public? Being called a, you know, Lord knows what, you know, misogyny. And I don't even know know the the isms and the ologies that I would be called. Uh, But when the church gets confused, but this is exactly what the false teachers want to do to the church at Ephesus. They're confusing men and women here. And then if you if you were to turn along, like in chapter four, verse three, not only do they confuse men and women, but they confuse um, marriage, they, they, they're forbidding in chapter four, four, verse three, they forbid marriage and require, require abstinence from foods that God has created so that, that Paul is pushing against something. He's not writing this letter out into the vacuum of space, but he's pressing against false teaching in the church that's confusing men and women, that's degrading marriage. And in fact, he's very, very concerned about correcting that. He's very concerned. So we've seen that we've got to watch out in, in chapter 4. Um, but in chapter 5, when he's addressing uh, widows in the church and things, he says this in verse 14 about younger widows. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So that a woman who is a widow at a, widowed at a young age should, by God's grace, as God allows, right? I know there's all sorts of parameters around this. I know providence has a pl- role to play in this. But that they should seek to be married. That throughout the pastoral epistles, Paul is building up what, what is sometimes, dero- you know, it's called uh, in derogatory, right? Uh, the nuclear family somehow has become a derogatory term in our culture today. But he's building up men and women and marriage, having children, taking care of their households. And I'm going to show you in a minute, while this is so profoundly important, that your ordinary, boring, day-to-day life is actually pushing forward the kingdom of God in your midst. 
And as you wake up and you make the cereal and you make the waffles and I make the sausage for James Allen and, and that we're, as a man and a woman in our home, we're seeking to raise our children in the love and the admonition and the discipline of the Lord, we are doing something spiritual. And that as we learn in the context of the church, this is, here's the function of a man and here's the function and the role of a woman. That we are preaching something simply in that, but we're also pushing forward the restoring reign and gospel of Jesus Christ. He gets into it with Titus as, two, and Titus as well in chapter 2 of Titus, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Older women are to train younger women. Take care of your husband. Take care of your children. Take care of your home. That didn't start in 1950, y'all. We have the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, saying as such to us. And women, if that's what you're doing, and I'm not saying that you can't work outside the home, but if that, that's what you're doing, and you feel stretched, right? I, you know, I, I look at Sarah Beth, and she wakes up, and she teaches school, and then she comes home, and she teaches us, and, right, and she's, she's, she's working and laboring. And when you feel stretched, you need to know. You need to have that foundation of saying, Yes, this matters not simply because you have a husband and children, but this matters before the Lord. That you're doing kingdom work there in your home. Our present moment, as I've already alluded to a couple times, is not much different than the first century here in Ephesus. We live in a time of mildly, we could say, a gigantic gender confusion. Uh, it's been treading in this way for a long time. Um, there's confusion about gender. There's confusion about marriage. There's confusion about not just like gender in terms of men and women in society, but there's, a, there's confusion about uh, men and women in the home. And what is a woman? And what is a man, right? We have some... T- I'm not going to get into Supreme Court uh, justices who seem confused on this matter, right? But there's massive confusion of really, really smart people that should know that it's explicitly clear this is what a man is and this is what a woman is. Our present moment is not much different. We have messages of liberty that sound out. And again, they're telling you, you your greatest fulfillment is, is your self-actualization, that you can arrive at something, some version of yourself detached from God's purposes for you and somehow you will be happier. And we can, we can you know, say, we can wave our, our fingers at that, but we also must have a, a deep compassion that people are being deceived. And rather than finding flourishing and, and, and joy and fullness, their lives are being shattered upon the rocks of our cultural confusion. Their people are being, this, this costs people. It destroys people. I have seen it in our community destroy homes and destroy children as confusion destroys marriages. This matters much today about what God says about men and women. And I don't, I'm not going to explicitly be able to handle everything else. But your fulfillment as a person, your flourishing as a person happens through Jesus Christ 
according to how God has designed you. Not contrary to it. Your fulfillment, your joy happens through Christ as you submit and repent and believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus. He does not save you out of maleness. He does not save you out of femaleness. That's not what Paul's saying elsewhere when he says there's no longer male or female. Right? He's saying that, that we are equal with our differences. We all have a claim to the throne of grace. So when we're talking about different sorts of functions within the church, this is not an equality conversation. This is a role and a function conversation, and it's how God has set up the church and the home. So what that means is that, men, part of your fulfillment in Christ, part of your fulfillment in Christ will mean living out your redeemed masculinity. Sure, there might be something called toxic masculinity, but masculinity is not toxic. Jesus came born of a woman, born of a virgin as a man, a boy. You get what I'm saying? Women, this means that your fulfillment and your flourishing in Christ will in part be you living out redeemed femininity before God. That there is a redeemed masculinity and there is a redeemed femininity. And that word is, I've Googled that at least six times this week to make sure I spell it right in my notes. I'm not sure if I'm, it's a lot of ends. It feels more, there's more ends than there should be. Okay, but but as a man, you're following Jesus. And as a woman, you're following Jesus because he made male and female in his image in the beginning. He did not make some genderless, unisex people. But he gendered them in the beginning. And so there's something about you, man, and you, woman, that images God in a way that, you, that men, men can't do on their own. And you image God in a way that, that women can't do on their own. That in, 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 and it exalts the, the, and this isn't the sermon, but it exalts the beauty of marriage. The man and woman coming together displays Christ in a way that you could not do apart. Christians, take your stand here. It's okay if the culture laughs at you. It's okay if they think you're ridiculous. It's okay. Let God be true and every man be found a liar. Do not be ashamed of this. In the beginning, right? God said, let there be light. And then a few days later, he said, I'm going to make man in my image. And male and female in his image, he made them. He made them. And so if that's the case, according to the design of God, you you being fulfilled and find flourishing and joy in this life and in the next is related to how God has made you. It's related to you being a man. It's related to you being a woman. Jesus did not come to save you from that. He came to save you into that. Sin corrupts that our rebellion against God corrupts what it means to be a man so that men too often would take scriptures like this and it becomes overbearing and oppressive to women a justification for treating women as second-class citizens which is ought to be seen as an abomination to Christians 
For good grief, the, the church is described as the bride of Christ. Exalted in glory. Husbands, love your wives like that. I dare you to raise your hand up if that's what you're living. It is the standard above all of us. Sorry. There's... So, so sin comes in and, and twists our understanding. And we see it in the garden. We see it in somewhere like Genesis chapter 3, right? After the sin comes in and God says to, to the woman in 3.16, I'm going to multiply your pain and childbirth. Your desire is going to be for your husband and he will rule over you. So that the, the design of God is corrupted and, ex, and it's, it's, it's twisted by sin. So that men begin to rule over their wives, have it, have it, seek to rule over their wives, and their wives begin to have a will that is contrary to their husbands. And so there's conflict where there ought to be unity. And this matters because in a minute, we're going to unpack that story because it's exactly what Paul does at the end of this chapter. But we're designed for worship and sin twists and destroys and corrupts our worship by twisting and destroying how God has designed us. So just destroying or pressing against the design of God destroys our worship. It destroys our relationships. It destroys our communities. And it subverts our communication of the gospel. Destroying the design of God destroys worship. It corrupts worship. It corrupts and destroys our relationships. It des de destroys and corrupts our communities. And it subverts. Or it erodes the communication of the gospel story. But the beautiful thing is that God, through the gospel, restores. So let me say explicitly what's happening here. And then I want to spend some time, as God allows, at the very end. So again, Paul is saying that you women who have taken these positions of authority in the church, you need to repent, repent and step down. You women who have taken authority in preaching the word of God... He's saying this to the Ephesian church. You need to repent and step down. That the non, our Baptist faith and message, which is our confessional document as a church, says that the office of pastor is reserved for men alone. And that is true, well, and good. Biblically speaking, there ought not be female woman pastors. But this scripture actually goes beyond our confessional document. Our confessional document reserves that for office, saying the office of a pastor. But everything that Paul says here is function. So that the function of a pastor and the function of a preacher and the context of a local church is reserved for men duly called and equipped. Let a woman learn, therefore, with all submissiveness. I don't really deal with eight and nine, but we're going to move into it. And I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Again, pushing that against some of the other things we see in Scripture. This isn't like, hey, you can never say anything. But this is predominantly talking about this function right here. I do not permit, and, and sometimes people, when they want to get squirrely with this text and try to make it say something that he doesn't, they're saying that Paul's saying, well, that's his personal opinion. 
Um, and, and the Greek word there, everywhere Paul uses, it is a, an authoritative apostolic declaration that he is being inspired by the Holy Spirit to say uh, women should not teach or exercise authority over a man. That's it. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? So that's, the, that's it, right? The function of a pastor preacher is reserved for men. Women ought not seek for it, nor should they be ordained for it. And it introduces great corruption and confusion to the church. And invariably, you can look at it. Go, I don't know how to tell you to Google this, but, but if you look at church history, typically, when churches begin to fudge here, they begin to fudge everywhere else doctrinally. It becomes, and I know slippery slopes arguments are, you might think they're dumb, but this is a slippery slope. When churches begin to say, well, you know, God, God didn't really, did God really say, did God really say, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man? What if, what if she feels cold? What if she's gifted? Well, there might be confusion in the call, but this doesn't negate giftedness and skill. It's about the order and the call of God. But it opens the door where, where we take something in the word of God and we begin to twist it to make it something that we want rather than what it is. Then we're willing to do that in other places. Was Jesus really born of a virgin? Did he really rise from the dead? Does Jesus being God incarnate really matter? Wasn't he just a good model and an example for us? And you might think right now you're being ridiculous, Jacob, but I've seen that happen in my lifetime. Where churches in whole denominations fudged here. And I'm not saying it's because of this issue, but I'm saying there's so much cultural pressure. Because there's so much, I know it's pushing back in your heart right now, saying he must be wrong about this. I like Joyce Meyer on TV. Well, please turn that off. For, I don't, I don't, it could be, I mean, it could be a dude preaching that junk, but that's junk, garbage, trash, throw it away. I don't want this to be a six hour sermon. Okay. Um, so, uh, but there's so much cultural pressure here from first, second, third wave feminisms, feminism, right? The first one being pretty legitimate and it's kind of devolved since then. There's so much cultural pressure here for the church to conform. And if we begin to conform to the message of the culture on this point, then we'll be more willing to capitulate on some other point tomorrow. Right? You've heard about Neville Chamberlain, right? The guy who was the prime minister of England when Hitler rose to power. And he just sort of started saying, yeah, that's okay, Hitler. Have that. Have that. Have that. And all of a sudden, the lion's full grown and he's threatening to swallow Europe. And it takes the lion of someone like Winston Churchill to arise. So when we begin to, when we begin to fudge on one point, and by fudge, I mean when we begin to say, eh, you know, we have a different standard. This is the 21st century. We certainly have figured this out by now. We know better. Dear ones, that becomes the fundamental argument for saying, you know, uh, well, is, is, you know, is marriage really worth, you know, it's, 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 it's it unravels. It begin that argument begins to unravel the, the biblical worldview. And if you're not going to take God at his word here on the hard things, 
then why would we take him at his word at the happy things? What will separate me from the love of God? Yay! That's awesome news. But he also has hard things to say, to say that you must be first discipled and shaped around the word of God and his gospel more than you are by the culture around you, more than you are by your family around you. You must take your stand upon the word of God. And for so long in America, that seemed like a little thing to do. Because by and large, the culture lined up so much with the church. But right now, dear ones, it is costly. I don't care if this thing blows up. I'm not done. It is a costly thing to take your stand on something as small, it seems as small as this. But when God has said, we must say, yes, Lord. This is a part of walking by faith and not by sight when we take God at his word. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, God restores He brings wholeness and fullness where there was brokenness and confusion. He brings clarity to to the proclamation of the word of God. He brings clarity to the worship of God amongst his people. That worship ought to be shaped by the gospel as we see with eight and nine men praying with their hands up, right? Without, Without quarreling or anger in their hearts. Women adorning themselves with good works before they're concerned about the color of their skirts or their earrings. Paul's not saying that you can't wear those things, but he's saying you should be more concerned when you come into worship, more concerned about the status of your heart, men and women, than you are about what other people around you think. Um, Worship is reshaped according to design. It is a submission to God's design. Worship begins as we submit to God's design. God's design in creation, but God's design in redemption. Right? There is no salvation if you don't submit to the God who has designed salvation to rescue the ungodly. This is the fundamentals of the gospel submission. You understand what I'm saying? We come into, the, the, we come into it saying, I'm going to save myself this way. I'm going to save myself by my goodness. I'm going to save myself by my material possessions. I'm going to save myself through various other means. But the gospel says that you are rescued from sin, Satan, and death through Christ and Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, to God only be the glory. And you must submit to that. There must be a surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Savior, saying, I can't save myself. You came for the bad, as Spurgeon says, it's awesome. You came for the badness in me, not the goodness. And so why would we think otherwise when we think about the worship of God's church or the conducting of God's home that we surrender and submit to the design that he has for us? So worship is also, it's according to the gospel, it's according to design, and it's according to the story. I've got, oh, goodness gracious. Okay. This is why we moved to 10 o'clock. So I know, I know you're not hungry. Um, uh, I know you don't have a crockpot on, right? I, mean, I gave this buffer. <laughs> um, so he, he, said, he begins to justify this. So why? Why ought worship be like this? Why should it be shaped like this? Why submission? Why, why leadership? We haven't even talked about headship and all that kind of stuff yet. And that's not for today. But why ought it to be like this? In verses 13, 14, and 15, he says why. And this is why verses 13, 14, and 15 instruct us 
that what God is teaching us here through the Apostle Paul cannot be limited simply to the context of the church at Ephesus. This is not a localized issue with a localized solution because he roots it in the story of creation. He roots what he says about men and women and the conduct in the worship of the Lord God. He roots it in God's design in creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. I want to get to verse 15 because you're probably like, this all makes sense until you get to there. It's a very confusing verse to us. Um, but, he, but he's saying that there is a, like Adam, again, he goes from creation. So this is what I mean. Our worship must be shaped according to the story of God's world, God's design, God's gospel. That he makes Adam, then he makes Eve. So this is the creation account in chapter 2 of Genesis. Adam was created first, then Eve was created, and Adam was not deceived. You remember the serpent embodying Satan, symbolic presence of Satan, however you want to deal with the snake in the garden. Uh, He comes to Eve. He does not go to Adam. He goes to Eve and said, did God really say? And begins to subvert and erode her confidence in the word of God. And you know to whom the word of God came? Adam. And Adam communicated it to Eve. Adam was placed into the garden to work it and to keep it. This priestly function of Adam in the Garden of Eden. He was to work it. He was to cultivate it so that it would become an expanding reality in the world. And God designed Eve to be his helper in this. And hear me real quick. The helper, that word helper, is not a slave or a servant. Other than that that passage in Genesis chapter 2, that word, literally 99% of the time, God is the subject. Psalm 121, I look to the hills, from whence comes my help? The Lord. It is the, the Lord is our helper, so that what Adam is given to do cannot happen without Eve. It cannot happen without Eve. And so Eve is deceived, then she brings, and this is a part of Adam's failure. The ESV and some other translations say, and she gave the fruit to him, and he was with her. And so as Eve is dealing with the serpent, it is Adam's job to work and to cultivate and to keep the garden, to keep evil out and to see righteousness and goodness flourish. His wife is dealing with the serpent and he remains silent. Part of Adam's failure is his passivity. Where he should have picked up the hoe and knocked off the head of the serpent in that moment. To defend his wife and to fulfill the mandate that the Lord had given him in the garden. But he did not. And so she fell into transgression. He fell into transgression. And all of us fell into sin behind them. So what is God's solution? Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Sometimes people try to generalize this and say women are going to be their translations that do this, that say women are saved through childbearing. Um, But it's a singular reference. And the only reference that that could be referring to is Eve. 
So Eve will be saved through childbearing. Why is that so significant? Well, you look at Genesis chapter 16, right? It's through, and those of you who have given birth, you know, it is not an easy matter. It is painful and it's devastating to a woman's body. It's hard, it hurts, I've observed it. Four times now, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. It is, it is a tra- traumatic, I can remember the first time, I remember, uh, we don't have time for a bunch of stories, but uh, just real quick, Evelyn, when Evelyn was being born, and things did not go like smoothingly, smoothly, 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 uh, did not go according to plan, and they started talking about it, they unfurled, you know, if you've ever been in that delivery room, there's this table that's covered with a sheet, and they unfurl it. And there's all these implements, and I, I felt it in the back of my knees, right? <laughs> and I lean forward. I'm on the bed. She's laying there, you know, working hard. And, and I'm just, I'm like, you're doing great, baby. I'm like, all my weight is on the, on the bed, because otherwise I'm going down. I'm going. I can't go down. We're almost there. I can't go down. Uh, and she'll tell you the truth. She knew it. She's like, you don't, mm-mm, mm-mm. Uh, <laughs> So she, you know, it's, and that, that pain is in childbirth is a part of the curse. It's a reminder of the fall. And the reminders of the fall are meant to remind us of the restoration that God's going to accomplish here. She will be saved through childbearing. So it's through much travail and much pain. But what's the verse before that in Genesis chapter 3, chapter 3 verse 15? That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent and he would bruise him on the heel. That it was through and through the generations of faithful women living out femininity, living out femininity through much pain and much trial and much travail. And it's much easier today. I know it might not seem like it. You have given birth, but it's much easier today than it was back then. How many children were lost how many mothers were lost, all as a result of sin and the curse in this world. And yet, women kept living out femininity before God. You can go read the genealogy of Jesus. And what's so unique about it is that there's four women, I think plus Mary, that are included. But for all of those, those guys did not beget somebody else by their own, right? Right? We're not hydras, if you ever took high school biology, that sort of sprout more of them. But it takes a man and a woman that come together in marriage before God. Ideally, before in marriage, as designed in marriage, uh, that makes children. The seed of the woman, generation after generation after generation, the descendants of Eve had children, and they had children, and they had children. And then one day... A young, young woman named Mary came to be. And she would become with child, not by any man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit resting upon her. And the seed of the woman was conceived. So you who would think that I'm saying that your femininity makes you second class. I'm saying the exact opposite. That the hero or the heroine of this story, this passage that Paul's laying out is Eve. She will be saved through childbearing. She gave birth in hope. 
Seth was born and the generations of the righteous went to be. And thousands of years later, Jesus was born. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. The only way that Eve is saved is if Jesus is born. The only way that Adam is saved is if Jesus is born. The only way that restoration comes to be is if Jesus is born. And Jesus is born after a long line of ordinary men and women, maybe with extraordinary stories, but ordinary men and women born by ordinary generation. Until God brought the light of the world to be in this dark world. And he reminds us that if we're going to see the restoration that God's going to do and be in this world, where we're going to see no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more sin, then, dear one, it is not by Christians, the people of Jesus, trying to live out a contrary identity to the way that God has designed you. It is by pressing in to how God has made you and how God has redeemed you. So men, be men of faith after the heart of God. Women, be faithful followers of Christ. Look after your homes. There is no indignity there. It is only the glory of God. Let the world make fun of you. Let the world look at us in shame. But God holds you up in glory as examples for us. There is no lesser. There is no greater. But may we... Like the descendants of Eve and Adam, some of them, continue in faith and love and holiness. God frees us to joyfully live before him and service to him as he made us. Submit to his design. Submit to Christ, the Lord of faith. We pray. Father, we ask that you would give us hearts that bow. I pray for those who have heard. I know there was... In took a lot. I pray that your spirit would begin to filter and cut things that don't need to be in their mind. And uh, that, Lord, they would be securely built upon your word. Lord, would you prevent the adversary who wants to come right now and to, to take away the seeds of the gospel and the seeds of hope and the seeds of life. And bring confusion and disorder. Would you, would you bind him and send him away? That, Lord, this word where it is faithful to your word, would it find good soil in these hearts that it might bring forth fruit for your glory. So Lord, we look to you in faith and in love and hope, looking for the day that Christ returns. It says, in his name we pray, amen.